I've titled my sermon this morning, What Makes a Relationship with God Real? The word relationship comes up at times when we talk about God, and we speak of relationship with God. I want to ask, this thing that we call our relationship with God, is it real? If two people love each other, and they're close, do things together, we say they're in relationship. You can see it. The evidence is there. It's real. There's a certainty there. It's evident. But relationships are not things that you can measure on a scale or with a measuring device. You don't know. There's no size to them. There's no weight to them. But they're just as real nevertheless. Relationships are real. They exist. And they can be good and sometimes not so good. Many years ago, <clears throat> I read a story. Some of you know this story. You've read it in school and it's not new to you, but there's a powerful truth embedded in it. And so I want to share that little story, just part of it. You may have heard the story of the velveteen rabbit. A simple little children's story of a little soft velvet toy rabbit stuffed with sawdust. This little velveteen rabbit lived in a toy room with some other toys. One day the toy rabbit had a discussion with the skin horse. Part of the discussion went like this. What is real? asked the rabbit. He and the toy horse were lying side by side in the nursery room. He said, does it mean having things that buzz inside you and a stick-out handle? Toy horse said, real is not how you're made. It is something that happens to you when a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for the skin horse is always truthful. And he said, when you're real... You don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up? The rabbit asked. Or is it bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real... Most of your hair has been loved off, and your eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all, because once you're real, you can't be ugly, except to people who don't understand. I suppose you're real, said the rabbit. And then he wished he had not said it, for he thought the skin horse might be sensitive. But the skin horse only smiled. The boy's uncle made me real, he said. That was a great many years ago. But once you're real, you can't become unreal again. It lasts for always. The story is bigger than that. It's just a fairy tale story. But there's a part of it that I want to use as a point to point out a truth. Real and relationship go together. I want to think about this next phrase or this next thought I want to mention. If a relationship is not real, is it then a relationship? I don't believe such a thing as a fake relationship exists. 
then it's not real. Then it's not, it doesn't exist. I read this story about this velveteen rabbit many, many years ago. And it hit me when I read it. And I, sometimes when you read something, it just burns itself into the, to the mind and you never forget about it. And that's what happened to this story. And I've come to a conclusion over the years that relationships are the strongest things that exist in life. People die for them. God did. He sent Jesus. Jesus died so this relationship could be real. There's nothing so strong in the whole universe as the power of love in the context of relationship. Nothing can match the strength and power of that. The strongest thing in the universe is not a material substance, not a physical thing. The strongest thing in the universe is love in a relationship. Last Sunday, we began a sermon series on 1 John with a focus on certainties about God. Jesus was certain as a man on earth where he was, who he was, and who he lived for, and what his job was, what his calling was. His disciples, they too, after having spent time with him, having gotten to know him, and then seeing him suffer and die and rise from the from the dead, they too were certain. And those disciples, under the power of the Holy Spirit, went and preached and instructed people, and the church grew at a very fast pace. And the early followers of Jesus, many of them suffered terribly, and yet the church kept growing. The message of the gospel just went further and further. There was a certainty in them that could not be extinguished. Through the ages, this has continued. Today, still many thousands of people walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Many endure hardship, are willing to give up everything, even life itself, for the sake of this message and what it stands for. And the force and the power and the energy of this has driven this movement. It's love. God's love through the power of His Spirit working in the lives of His people. And it will continue. It will never stop. Jesus promised, he said, the gates of hell won't stop it. And this is something that in faith we as Christians today, we embrace and accept as certain for ourselves as well. Our relationship with God is held together, is nurtured and sustained through this powerful love of Jesus by his spirit and in our response and faith and, and obedience to him. When Jesus left this earth, as a man, he and the Father were one, he said. Then he prayed a prayer in John 17. He prayed that his followers, too, would be united. Again, the context is a relationship. And Jesus is the foundation on which the apostles built their faith and everything centered on him. And Jesus, to the fullest extent, he demonstrated it, not just in his teaching, but towards the end, when um, the last evening that he was together with them, one more time he taught them a lesson of what this means. We find it in the Gospel of John. We won't turn to it this morning, but we call it the Last Supper. He reminded them of his sacrificial love, what he was going to do for them. He demonstrated it with the bread and the, and the wine. How he, he didn't drink of it himself. He said, I will no longer drink of this until I drink it in the kingdom to come. But his disciples got a powerful message that night. And then later on, they kept preaching this and, and practicing this. And we still do so today. And this morning, again, after the message, we want to do it again. 
You see, when we believe something, there's a reason and a purpose behind it. It's rooted in something. And for us as Christians, Jesus Christ is our goal. He's the object of our faith. The Apostle John wanted his readers to be certain as to where they were in their faith journey with God, in their relationship with God, and their faith with God. He didn't want it to be just some wishful thinking, some tradition, some normal practice. He wanted it to be real. And he took this very seriously. To him, it was everything. And in the setting of the time when there was false teachings happening and starting to come up, he wrote this letter, 1 John. Last Sunday, we went through chapter 1, so this morning, we're going to start in chapter 2. So let's turn to 1 John chapter 2, beginning verse 1. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Let's stop there. We left off last Sunday in chapter 1 where John wrote of the faithfulness of God toward those who repent and confess their sins. Now in chapter 2 this morning we find John explaining to his readers God's grace for us when we do not measure up. In other words, when we do fail, when sin does happen. Sometimes I wonder, how does the average person, even Christian, imagine God? Perhaps as an angry judge just waiting to beat up on some unsuspecting weak person who has not measured up, has not accomplished what he should, and God's just waiting to get at somebody. That's a totally wrong view of God. When we believe and we've put our faith in God, we do not need to fear God as somebody out to get us. Someone seeking to restore us, yes. John wrote in chapter 1, about who God is, He's real, He's light, there's no darkness in Him, and so on. Now in chapter 2, we see the way John addresses the audience. It's like John's opening up a window into his own heart as to what place these people had in his heart. He's, he says, my little children. An interesting way to write to believers. One writer suggests that maybe John was by this time an old man, which we believe he was, an old apostle. Regardless of how old he was by now, his readers were to him, very dear to him, like children. He cared deeply for them. We don't know how many he may have possibly led to salvation himself through his ministry. We don't know. But we can imagine John's ministry had been very fruitful over the many years. Now he writes to his audience with the heart of a father. He calls them little children. They were adults. They didn't need babysitting and be in a daycare. But they were in danger, there was danger around of being influenced by other teachings that would distract them from their relationship with Jesus. He wants them to avoid getting sidetracked. So the things John was writing to them were based on the reality and certainty of Christ. This was an encouragement, inspiration to the people in their relationship with Jesus, that they would stay focused and devoted. He's that you may not sin, he says. I'd just like to mention here that when John is talking about sin in this part of his letter, in this context, he's not talking about a lifestyle of unbelief and rebellion. It's not what he's saying here. As I mentioned last time, this letter was written to believers who were living in relationship with God. More of that will come out later in the chapter. Here in these verses, John is talking to a people who have surrendered themselves to God, who have repented of their sins, who are following Jesus, but they're not perfect. They miss things. They mess up. And when that happens, people can become very discouraged. I think we fit in. 
What John is saying, there are times when God's people, even though they have turned to Christ, they're not perfect. Because of that, sin still happens. The sin that John is talking about here is the sin of falling short of the mark of the holiness before God. We all sin in that way. Let me say it clearly. In this life, there's no human being who never has to repent and apologize, no matter how much they love Jesus, how perfect they become. There's always something we could have, should have done different. There's always something we could have done better. In other words, if God would take us to heaven based on a quality inspection, like some earthly measured quality and control, it would be a very flawed place in heaven. God does not use earthly human measurements, quality control. But if he uses his standard of holiness, everybody falls short all the time. That's why we need Christ, because he... He evaluates us through the work of the cross of Jesus, on the, what he did on the cross. That's how he evaluates us. And it's not that so much our perfection as what he did. Let's read verse 2, what he says. He says, he is the propitiation. In another translation, say, sacrifice. He's the sacrifice for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Let me say it this way. John is saying that the death of Jesus is payment for my sins, for your sins, for our sins. So what does this mean? It means that we have sins, and those sins need payment. They need to be paid for. And the death of Jesus is that payment for, for all the sins. He's saying if someone does sin, we have an advocate. An advocate is somebody who intercedes for us, a little bit like a lawyer. Someone speaks on our behalf to the Father. Jesus is that person. It means that God, and God, by God's grace, through Jesus Christ... We're still viewed as saints before God through the works of Jesus on the cross, not through our performance. God's grace in his children is not dependent on the accomplishment of their human fleshly performance. I know this sounds difficult. Then why is obedience so important? God's children in and of themselves cannot measure up to God's standard of holiness no matter how obedient they become, but their obedience does reveal the direction they're going. If God's grace in our lives was dependent on our performance, we would all fail all the time. The Bible teaches us that God's a God of mercy and love. He's a God of grace and truth. He's also a God of justice and judgment. That never changes. Those attributes are constant. They're always the same. What this means is the sins that we commit, they too are paid for, but does not mean we don't have to repent. I know this would be disheartening and discouraging if I would say this, but I'll say it anyway. This week will not go by, maybe even today won't go by, that anybody could say, you know what, I had a perfect record. Nothing to apologize for, nothing to repent of. God would actually owe me one day of merit, credit. It's not going to happen. So because we're not perfect, because we fall short, we need reminders to keep us informed and alert so that we do not fall. The context here, the statement, do not sin, is not referring, as I said before, to willful, intentional, planned out, rebellious life of sin. That's, he's talking to believers here. Jesus is the one who paid for his sins. He paid the debt. He settled the account. And it's not like God's going to say on Judgment Day to someone, uh-oh, sorry, we ran out of grace on you. Sorry about that. That's not how this works. When he calls us to repent, and we respond in humility and repentance and obedience, that's where the relationship happens. Then we move forward. 
And Jesus himself said, in John 3.16, when he had this discussion with Nicodemus, Jesus himself said, to try to explain to Nicodemus, he said, For God so loved the world, that's John 3.16, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's look at this for a moment. Who's the initiator? It's God. God did the loving. And that love did what? In love he gave his only Son. Why? So that whoever receives that, believes that, accepts that, they should not perish but have eternal life. So it's the love of God in the giving of His Son. Whoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. And therein is the relationship. The Apostle John says in this letter, if we know Him, if we know Jesus, then it will be revealed. He says in verse 4, let's turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 4. He says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Ouch. That's hard. John is very clear. He says, the standard is very high. If we say we know God, does the evidence point in that direction? Again, I'm not talking about perfection, but does the evidence point there? Are we keeping his commandments? If we're living in sinful rebellion, no, we're not. Then the truth is not in us. That's what John is saying. To claim to have a relationship with Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to love Jesus, that means we'll be bringing those kinds of fruits in our lives. We will have the desires Jesus has. We want the things Jesus wants. We'll do the things Jesus did. Not in perfection, but it will be there. You know, it's sad but true. Sometimes there's even liars in church. I have been friends since the beginning. Remember the book of Acts. There was a couple. They were a couple of liars. Ananias and Sapphira. They too joined the church, outwardly appearing as holy, as good, as honest, except when it came to giving some gifts to the church. And the Spirit revealed to Peter that this couple is dishonest. And so Peter confronted them, God judged them, and that was that. But there were liars in the early church right at the get-go. Still are today. So there are a lot of people who would like to be part of a church for the wrong reasons. Many people who have an idea of believing in Jesus or going to church and doing ministry miss this point. In fact, Jesus says in, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, there's a lot of people who have who will say to him on judgment, oh, we did all this and this and this and this in your name, and we did this, and Jesus I don't even know you. In other words, there's no relationship. Let's continue reading 1 John 2, verse 5. He says, But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. A real relationship with God is rooted in God. We surrender our lives to Christ and we walk in relationship with Him. If we say we abide in Jesus, the evidence must be there. We must walk the way He walked. And it's not as if this is something new. It's not something that's just popped up. John says so. He says in verse 7, Behold, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word you've heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Jesus himself said in the Gospels that heaven and earth would pass away, but his words would never pass away. Yes, the message is old, at the same time it is new. To command to love 
The command to love is a command that is always up to date. It never has to be updated as software in a computer. It's never out of date. It's never past expiry date. It's always fresh and new, as old as it is. Earlier, John wrote that God is light, in him there's no darkness. God is not decreasing his work or lessening his work. This work is growing in the world. John is saying the darkness is passing away. The message of the gospel is growing and spreading into an ever-widening place of influence, and it's still continuing to this day. But what does this look like in daily living, in the nuts and bolts of things? Let's read verse 9 and on. He says, Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. So this does not work that way. He says in verse 10, Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. In him there is no darkness for stumbling, no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John says, If there's a brother or sister whom we hate, then we're off the track. We cannot have it both ways. We cannot live with hate toward those who are brothers and sisters and at the same time be in relationship with God. There's no such thing as loving God and hating another brother or sister. If we love God, we will love those whom he loves. We must realize there's no room for the follower of Jesus to have hate in their heart. We're actually even commanded to love our enemies. You can find that in Matthew chapter 5. If there's hatred in our hearts toward other believers, that means we're not walking in light. As John says, we're still walking in darkness. Our relationship with God is revealed by how we treat our fellow believers and fellow human beings. The Apostle John is writing to believers, reminding them to pay attention to this truth, that they will love one another. He continues on in verse 12, he says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. You're on the right track. But then he continues on, he says in verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you children because you know the father. I'm writing to you, fa- I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. John is very intense here. He's very serious. He's very focused. He wants to make sure everybody gets this. Nobody can say, well, it's not for me. He uses imagery to communicate what he wants them to understand. It's interesting how he, he just goes to such extent here. He wanted them to be in real relationship with God and with each other. The greatest example we have of a demonstration of love, as I said before, was Jesus Christ himself when he gave his life on the cross. He demonstrated his love for his people. And at the communion, at the Last Supper, when he shared the cup with his, his disciples, he said, this is the blood, this is my blood that's given, shed for the sins of the world. And the same with the bread, he said, this is my body that's being broken for humanity. As good as all this is, you know, the truth is, you and I cannot love Jesus as fully as he loved us because we're human and we're frail. But we can do the right thing. We can walk with him. We can be in real relationship with him. If we love Jesus, our lives will reveal it. Jesus died so it could be possible for us to come to know him through his mercy and grace. Our calling is to live out this gospel in a way that others will see, and they too will want to embrace it as well. If we say we love others, 
but then don't show it, then we're lying. I'm reminded of a story um, that I heard many years ago of a um, man who gave a speech and he explained and illustrated this concept of love. And he told of a poster on a wall he had seen. There was a poster of a man, a drunken bum, lying in a gutter, all ragged and disheveled and drunken and, and a whiskey bottle laying by his side and just not a pretty picture. And underneath of that picture on that poster was this phrase, you love Jesus only as much as the one you love the least. In other words, make a list of all the people you know and put them in priority. The ones you love the most, put them at the top. The one you love the least, put them at the bottom. Underneath that, put Jesus Christ. That's what it means. When Jesus came to this world to show his love to humanity that's much bigger than we can ever imagine with our mind, a sinful, rebellious, spiritually dead humanity, that's who he came for. He's not ashamed to love us, to build relationships with us. And even in our frailty and in our imperfection, he still loves us and still intercedes to the Father for us. That's special. This morning we want to celebrate communion again as we do from time to time, to remind ourselves of this great sacrifice that He made and this love that He gave for us. It is special. It is special. It is real. It's not pretend. Before we go further, and, and I invite people to come forward, let us pray. Lord, we're thankful for Your Word to us. You give everything for us to live in relationship with You spend eternity with you. It's not fake. It's not pretend. It's, it's real. Lord, we ask, help us to live in relationship with you and one another. May our hearts desire for your blessings. May our hearts desire be according to your will. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Thank you for your grace, for your mercy, and for your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.